When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before we get going with today's Coaching Coordinator Podcast, I want to remind you of our sweepstakes, which will be awarded on December 12th, the five-year anniversary of the launch of the podcast. You can go to glazierclinics.com slash win for all the details. You will win a trip for two, including flight, hotel, rental car, as well as a Glazier staff pass. All the details are there at glazierclinics.com slash win. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about how this is becoming a thinking man's game and how you can adapt as a coach to, I think, what is a change in some of the things we're seeing within the game and we will continue to see as the game is moving forward. And I want to point to a couple of articles that I read. The first one here is from Sports Illustrated, and it's just a quote from Nathaniel Hackett, who is the offensive coordinator for the Green Bay Packers. And Nathaniel went to UC Davis. He actually planned to be a doctor, very cerebral guy, but he was talking about teaching here. And the quote is this, I remember when I got into coaching, part of it was understanding that there was going to be a cultural change in how people present and how you're going to teach people. You you can't just go up there and draw on the board. You're going to need to do things that stimulate the guys more. That's how the brain reacts and holds on to different things, how people think and how they operate, teaching just like you would when you're in high school. People need references to remind themselves. And this article goes on to talk about all the different things that he does as a coach to get his players' attention, even how he names some of their plays and goes over what he calls the gold zone, uh, which is the red zone to him, but he's a big Austin Powers fan and uh, fan of gold member, and, and so he renamed it the gold zone and just a very interesting article about how you teach your players and in a modern approach to this. And I think we certainly pay attention to that on this podcast. We talk with coaches all the time about the best things that they do to teach. And uh, I will link that article in the show notes. It's definitely worth a read. I think I picked up a, quite a bit from it and just saw some great things as far as the perspective of what he's trying to do. But the article I'm really going to focus on today is from the Harvard Business Review in 1993. And I remember reading this article at the time I was in my first year of high school football as a coach. I was actually working in a manufacturing company. I was in a management training program. So the Harvard Business Review is a 
a magazine, a, a publication that was sitting around there in the office. And I remember certainly reading this one. And so I'll link this one in the show notes as well and refer to it quite a bit. And what's interesting as, as we get into reading this is that Bill Walsh early in his career maybe didn't get the opportunities because he was more of a cerebral guy. He was more of a, a guy who really would think things through. He wasn't necessarily the stereotypical coach. And I think that's where we're at today. If you look at the highest levels, you start to see some guys now like Nathaniel Hackett or like Mike McDaniel, offensive coordinator for the 49ers who went to Yale. Patrick Graham, defensive coordinator for the New York Giants, went to Yale. You have these very smart guys, intelligent guys, cerebral guys who are at the top now doing things. So I think you have to be on top of your game. You, you really need to think about why you do things and how you do things. And those are some of the things that come through in this article here about Walsh. So I'm going to read through some air sections of it and offer some comments as well. So we'll start here. Joining the August company of Newt Rockney, Paul Brown, and Vince Lombardi, former San Francisco 49ers and current Stanford University football coach Bill Walsh is recognized as one of the most important figures in football history. Walsh, like other coaching legends, has done far more than produce consistently winning teams. In his case, three Super Bowl champions for the 49ers in eight years and an organization enshrined in the press as the team of the 80s. During his 10-year career with the 49ers and as a coach at the high school, college, and professional levels, Walsh developed a uniquely thoughtful style of play and a successful system of team management that has become one of the most respected in the modern game. Less of a psychologist than Rockney, and never a disciplinarian like Lombardi, Walsh nevertheless produces winners through a business-like approach to maximizing the potential of players and coaches. His ability to coolly analyze opponents, matching their weaknesses with his team's strengths, has come from, has made come from behind wins a Walsh football hallmark. Believed to be too cerebral for a top position for which extreme macho was long considered an ineluctable quality, for years Walsh was forced to content himself with assistant coaching position. Prized nonetheless for his skills on offense, Walsh was honored for honing all pro quarterbacks, Dan Fouts, Kenny Anderson, and Greg Cook. In 1977, at the age of 47, Walsh became Stanford's head football coach. That year, he took a moderately talented Stanford team to a national ranking and a win in the Blue Bonnet Bowl. In 1979, Walsh was named head coach and general manager of a dreadful 49ers team that had been virtually dismembered in the late 1970s by mismanagement and horrendous personnel decisions. Walsh immediately began to develop a long-range strategic and personal plans for the 49ers. He focused on what other coaches had considered the minutia of the game, minute-by-minute -minute choreography of practices, breaking down individual and group tactics into parts, and defining responsibilities and setting objectives for both players and coaches. Just right there, I think you start to get the feel for what Walsh was really about. He definitely had the attention to detail. If you read his book, Finding the Winning Edge, it's more of a, a reference book on all the different things you need to do as a coach and all the attention to detail that you can put into things. And if you haven't seen that book, it has appendixes with, uh, appendices, I should say, with his 
meeting notes, how he would run meetings, all those different things, things that I think slip to the wayside for some guys. But when you really think about how you need to go about your job, how you go about being a professional in the coaching industry, it's really having that attention to detail and understanding how the best in this business do it and learning from them. Continue on here. This season, Walsh has been paid the ultimate accolade for a former for a coach. Former Walsh assistants are NFL head coaches in Tampa Bay, Minnesota, Green Bay, New York, and San Francisco. Retiring after his third Super Bowl victory in 1989, Walsh signed on as a football analyst for NBC Sports, is doing numerous bids on to uh, coach professionally before stunning the world in 1992 by returning as the head coach at Stanford. This interview was conducted by Richard Rappaport, who is a San Francisco-based writer and a contributing editor to to the San Francisco Focus in Forbes. His political commentary appears frequently in Knight Rider and other newspaper chains around the United States. So here's what the uh, author asked him. Do you see a link between managing and coaching? And Walsh said, I see coaches and executives who have more similar skills today than ever before. When I was with the 49ers, I was both head coach and general manager, so my duties were more business-oriented than those of a lot of NFL head coaches. Today's NFL is a very complex world, and great football knowledge alone won't get your team to the Super Bowl. Historically in sports, there has been one central figure in the organization whose presence dominates everything and whose judgments people identify with. That one person is the dictator, and everyone else simply does whatever he says. In a lot of ways, the old system was much easier for everyone involved. The dictator gave orders, and everyone else just followed them. Now working successfully with people in the organization demands more from the coach or the executive. In coaching, I think of the coach's ability to condition athletes' minds and to train them to think as a unit while at the same time making sure each athlete approaches his own game with total concentration, intensity, and skill. There should never be a moment on the football field when a player doesn't feel challenged both physically and intellectually. That is why the old bludgeon approach is leaving football the same way it is leaving business. So I think that's something, this is 1993, uh, that probably took a little bit, more time to change than Walsh thought it would. And I think we're starting to see, in a lot of ways, you see things coming back that maybe are more of that bludgeon approach, like using the eye formation, uh, multiple tight ends, fullbacks. But I think when something comes back, it comes back transformed from what it was before, that there are unique things with how how these are pieced together, uh, the way that coaches' thought processes work. So Even in that way, while you might use schemes like that, again, I think the ability to think is important. And then in your organization, uh, that empowerment of the individuals, whether those are your assistant coaches, whether those are your players taking leadership. Um, We're going to talk later in the week with Mike Kuchar from XNO Labs about the study he did on player-driven culture, right? That a team is going to be Uh, much more empowered and do a lot more when the players are able to drive things rather than this dictator top-down system, right? And I think we're starting to see that more and more today. And when you talk, you know, look at clinics, see who's talking. A lot of the guys who have won it all talk about how their program works. And it's not this dictatorial way or as 
Coach Walsh said here, uh, the, the way of things being bludgeoned. So uh, it goes on. And the next question was, what is replacing the old approach? And Walsh says, management today recognizes that to have a winning organization has to be more knowledgeable and competent in dealing with and developing people. That is the most fundamental change. The real task in sports is to bring together groups of people to accomplish something. In the old days, the approach was rather crude. The organization would simply discard a player who did not fit a specific predefined mold. If a player did not conform to the way management wanted him to behave, or if he made the organization uncomfortable, it got rid of him. That was the typical response. Today in sports, as elsewhere, individualism is the general rule. Some of the most talented people are the ones who are the most independent. That has required from management a fundamental change in the art and skill of communication and in organizational development. Most important, there has been much more recognition and acknowledgement of the uniqueness of each individual and the need that people have for some degree of security. When we think of, we hear today, especially uh, hear it all the time out of the Larry Karras coaching tree, and, and Larry Karras, a former Mount Union head coach, one of the winningest coaches in uh, the history of college football, has this great coaching tree with guys like Matt Campbell at Iowa State. Uh, you have uh, Jason Candle at Toledo, uh, a number of other coaches around football, and you'll hear them all the time talk about players, formation, plays, and Coach Karras really put a focus on how do we fit everything we do around the guys that we have, and I think the best coaches today do that. You don't try to put a square peg in a round hole. You figure out what are the skill sets that this group of player has? How can I fit some of these other skill sets maybe that I haven't thought about before into what we're doing and mold the system around the players rather than trying to, to change the players to fit into a system? So I think that's a very sound approach to it. And in, you know, another way of thinking about it, which I haven't, is just embracing the, each player's uniqueness right their individualism as as coach coach Walsh pointed out in his answer to that question so let's go on the next question was how does that translate into winning teams coach Walsh said those teams that have been the most successful are the ones that have demonstrated the greatest commitment to their people they are the ones that have created the greatest sense of belonging and they are the ones that have done the most in-house to develop their people. The commitment has come through in the personality of the organization. It is true of the Redskins, the Raiders, and of course, the 49ers. What is the biggest obstacle to creating this kind of organization? Well said, the coach must account for his ego. He has to drop or sidestep the ego barrier so that people can communicate without fear. They have to be comfortable that they will not be ridiculed. If they turn out to be mistaken or if their ideas are not directly in line with their superiors, that is where the breakthrough comes. That is what it takes to build a successful winning organization. That approach was certainly critical to the success of the 49ers. It contributed to an environment where our team could be more flexible and adaptable in responding to unexpected moves of our opponents. I tried to remove the fear factor from people's minds so they could feel comfortable opening their mouths. They knew they could be wrong one time and then, when they got a little more information, change their opinion and not be demeaned for it. In fact, 
I made a point of reminding our coaching staff that I expect them to change their opinions and impressions over time. The more information you develop, the faster things can change. I think that's a very important approach. It, to me, it has a focus on learning and developing. And it's something, it took me a while. It was an article I read. Um, it was a talk also at the AFCA, I think somewhere around 2003 or so. And uh, a, a past guest of the podcast, Mike Abershoff, who was uh, the commander of the USS Benfold, talked about how he transformed that ship from one of the worst in the Navy to one of the best performing from one that had all kinds of turnover every year to one that people were fighting to to be able to get assigned to that ship. And the shift occurred when he put that focus on development, but also empowered his people to be able to make decisions, to be able to offer ideas. And that's not always easy to do as a coach, but it was something that I learned to embrace over time. And it got to the point where when I was running and offense at BW, our whole thing was about what could our players bring back to us as well. What was the information they had as they were starting to learn how to do things? We might instruct them to do it this way. They may come back to us, and they often did with, Coach, what if I do this on this play? Or what if we use this procedure instead of doing this? And there was, I think, a lot of trust developed with the players that they were able to to have those conversations with us that they weren't going to get jumped and told that, you know, I'll do the coaching, you do the playing. Um, I know those approaches happen all the time. I know there's situations where there has to be that line. But I think when you're looking at how do we perform and how do we get better, you always have to be open to allowing people to have a voice in that. Otherwise, you become that dictator. It's top down. And it means that really most of the development is coming from you. It's one person now driving that rather than a whole organization that brings great ideas to the table to help improve everything. So something to think about there. So the next question was, but having enormous self-confidence seems essential for a leader, especially in pro sports. What is the role of healthy versus unhealthy ego in a competitive organization like a football team? Coach Walsh replied, English is a marvelous language, until it comes to the word ego. We Americans throw that around, using that one word to cover a broad spectrum of meanings, self-confidence, self-assurance, and assertiveness, attributes that most people think of as positive. But there is another side that can wreck a team or an organization that is being distracted by your own importance. It can come from your insecurity in working with others. It can be the need to draw attention to yourself in the public arena. It can be a feeling that others are a threat to your own territory. These are all negative manifestations of ego. And if you are not alert to them, you get diverted and your work becomes diffused. Ego in these cases makes people insensitive to how they work with others and ends up interfering with the real goal of any group efforts. This certainly speaks to the idea that it's really not important who gets the credit. Uh, As a head coach, I think you need to be willing to give your assistants credit. I think you need to be willing and go about 
elevating them in the eyes of your team, elevating them maybe in the eyes of the media. The understanding that this is a team effort and not letting it be about you. You have to be secure in that you're the guy who's leading this. It's okay that sometimes somebody else steps up and and does some things for you. You hired them. You brought them into the organization for a reason. I think too many times we see that happen. I know it's certainly happened to me in my career where uh, an insecurity of, of thinking that, wait a minute, why are you getting the attention? I'm, I'm the guy who's the boss of this, right? That has to be set aside and you should celebrate those things when your coaches are recognized, right? There's there's great awards out there for assistant coaches in college. The Broyles Award, I think, is is one of the most um, honorable ones that there is. That if if you're named to that, that that says a lot about you. That you know it's it's been your coach who's nominated you, and and the people in your sport, your peers, that think you've done an excellent job. So. Look at how you can remove the ego from the room, whether it's yours or other coaches. Don't get caught up in having to have all the attention, the spotlight, maybe tweeting about everything you do. Like, Make it about the team. Make it about the growth of your team and development and celebrate those times when somebody else can get the credit. Don't be scared away by it. What do you think are the essential management skills of a successful head coach. Coach Walsh said this, the role of the head coach begins with setting a standard of competence. You have to exhibit a strong working knowledge of the game. The head coach must be able to function effectively and decisively in the most stressful situations. And the head coach must demonstrate resourcefulness. In particular, he is responsible for designing a system of football that is not simplistic. The head coach's system should never reduce the game to the point where he can be blame his players for the success or failure simply because they did not physically overwhelm opponents. Successful coaches realize that winning teams are not run by single individuals who dominate the scene and reduce the rest of the group to marionettes. Winning teams are more like open forums in which everyone participates in the decision-making process, coaches and players alike, until the decision is made. Others must know who is in command, but a head coach must have behaved democratically. Then once a decision is made, the team must be motivated to go ahead and execute it. I think there's a, a couple important points there to review. The idea that a system should never reduce the game to the point where it can blame its players for the success or failure simply because they did not physically overwhelm opponents. Well, what does that mean? I think that puts an emphasis on the tactics of the game. Are you setting your players up for success? Are they in the right roles as we talked about before? Are you building around their skill sets? Right? Are they placed in a position to be successful? And then are they trained to do it? Do, have they refined the technical abilities? It is not always about who's going to hit the hardest or run the fastest or uh, drive somebody off the ball farther. There's some guys who could do that, 
There's other guys, and there will be multiple times when physically you might be overmatched. The other guy is bigger, faster, stronger. So how do you deal with those situations? And, and the best guys, you see them do it all the time. It is not always the most talented team on paper that wins. It's the team that executes the best. And why do they execute the best? Number one, because they've been put in a position and set up to win by having the strategy and the game plan and the schemes that work well with who they are. And they've been trained very well. They've been trained in every situation. And I think that's very important when you think about how you're going to put your systems together, about how you're going to teach your systems. And then not making everybody a puppet, not reducing their value, that it's an open forum like he mentioned there, kind of what he he said in that last question that you have to be open to multiple perspectives or like he said in the beginning that he expects everybody to come to to him with ideas and maybe they were wrong before but they get new information or more information right that's what you want you want a situation where there's some synergy between the group that the work of the group is going to elevate everybody what does it take to create a decision-making process in which people feel they can participate I think this is a a great question, and Coach Walsh answers. It starts with the expectations the head coach sets. It is part of the job to expect everyone in the organization to be an expert in his or her particular area of responsibility, to refine their skills continually, and to be physically and intellectually committed to the team. The head coach has to make it clear that he expects everyone to participate and volunteer his or her thoughts, impressions, and ideas. The goal is to create a communication channel that allows important information to get from the bottom to the top. During 49ers games, my coaches and I always tried to respond to what the players said. We knew that we needed their input, and it often made a difference. For example, in a game against New Orleans in 1987, I told the team at halftime that we would call one particular pass play when we got inside the Saints 30-yard line. In the stress of the moment, when we got there, I simply didn't think ascending in the play. But on the sideline, Steve Young, our backup quarterback, immediately reminded me of it. He wasn't a bit hesitant. I called it, and we scored. I couldn't worry about being embarrassed because I had forgotten what I said in the locker room. We were after results. We all wanted to win. I love that idea, and it's a great example of not being embarrassed when... Essentially, you're, you're called out or you're reminded that, hey, we said we were going to do this and we didn't do it. And I think a lot of times, instead of being vulnerable in that moment and saying, yep, you know, you're right, we did say that. I think we get defensive and, uh, again, try to draw that line. I'm the player, you're the coach, or I'm the coordinator, you're the assistant, or whatever it might be, and, and put it in this hierarchy. So, again, we need to understand that we're all working together and and again having that environment where nobody is afraid to voice their opinion is is going to lead to a situation where uh, you can always be at your best and in this example doing what they wanted to do that worked out for them I like this next question as well if that is what it takes to be a successful coach what are the qualities that define the modern football player and coach Wallace responded The key to being a modern football player is the ability to respond quicker, both mentally and physically, than the other player. Some people are naturally quicker physically, but to win, you need to be quicker as a team. 
you must beat your opposition to the punch every time. Physical strength and speed are important advantages, but even more advantageous is having the training that permits you to respond intelligently to whatever confronts you. That means more precision, better execution, and quicker responses than your opponents. Under the extreme stress of game conditions, a player must condense his intellect and focus it on thinking more quickly and clearly than the opposition. And this next question goes along with it. How do you achieve that quickness and responsiveness in your teams? Coach Wall said, in, it's in all in the way you prepare. Preparation allows us to overcome the fact that we might not be the most physically talented team. During the 1980s, the 49ers may have not been as talented as the New York Giants or Chicago Bears, who had measurable advantages in speed or strength, but we were able to compensate in the way that we prepared for a game. Some coaches rely on relatively simplistic plans when their plans don't work. They say it was the players who did not block hard enough or did not run hard enough or just were not tough enough. We have gone beyond that pattern of failure and finger-pointing. The responsibility for the success of the team starts with the coach, who develops the plan that is then executed by the players, who are extremely well-prepared. Being prepared starts with identifying the essential skills our team needs to compete effectively. The next step is to create a format to teach those skills. Here at Stanford, our practices and game plans are far more detailed than those used by most of our opponents. There is more to learn with our schemes, so we demand more mental commitment and concentration from the players. I love this answer from Coach and the idea that it's not always about physically overwhelming your opponent, but it's being able to think and execute quicker than they can. And it was somewhere around uh, 2003 or 2004 when I sat down with a number of coaches and really got into designing drills and understanding how you come up with drills and I'm really understanding that what we do in practice probably isn't going to come from this huge almanac uh, or drill book or things that you pick up here or there. They're going to be what your players have to do within the context of the game. Uh, and I think that's so important. Really teaching them to make certain decisions in this, in this teaching progression and initially just understanding how to react in one way, um, but then giving them the stimuli within the drill that requires them to execute one of usually a few only decisions, right? In most plays, there might be three to four scenarios which they're constantly going to face, situations that will happen, reactions of, of the other team, um, etc. Or, you know, they win in a certain area and it causes your player to have to do this instead. So setting up your drills around the decision making. And that's in every position, right? You, you have to adjust all the time. You want your players to be able to see things and adjust. It's not going to be this very robotic thing. They're, they're, those lines are drawn a certain way, yes, but there's thinking that has to be done along those lines. And I think that's how you come up with drills. You understand that these are the things that are going to happen. And so these are going to be the drills because these are the plays that we're going to run. I think if you have a drill that you can't point directly to, this is what we do and this is how it happens in the game, it's probably not 
a good drill and is a waste of time when time is limited, right? You have to decide on what are the best things to train this into our players. And I think you have to constantly be adjusting. So you might say, these are the three scenarios. We're going to prepare you for this. And all of a sudden, something new comes up that you hadn't seen before. That better get into your repertoire. You better understand that this is how it fits into our progression. So if this happens, this is the decision. Here's how we're going to drill it. The next question was, how do you approach the job of structuring practices so your players will be prepared? And Coach Walsh says, I believe in extremely precise, minute-by-minute, tightly structured practices. We focus far more intellect and put far more thought into what we practice than other teams do. We have five or six skills or techniques that we want to teach each of our players to be able to use in carrying out his assignment, where opponents will usually have only one or two. Take an offensive lineman, for example. Before the ball is snapped, that guard or tackle might have only three or four seconds to decide what kind of blocking technique to use on the man in front of him. Say there are four blocking techniques he can use. By the way, his man is positioned by the situation in the game, by what he has learned to expect from his opponent, he will be able to select one of those techniques. Many other teams take a more simplistic approach. They teach their players one approach, one technique. Our approach gives players more dimension. When we are playing powerhouses like Notre Dame, Texas A&M, or Washington, we have to use our extra dimension to compensate for being physically outmanned. That is the intellectual part of the game. That is the area in which we ask more of our players than our opponents are asking of theirs. It kind of goes back to what I just said. Preparing your players for those different scenarios. Giving them those tools in the toolbox that this is what you have at your disposal and this is how you should decide what to do. That's the training. That's what boils down to what you're going to do in your meetings, what you're going to do in your walkthroughs, what you're going to do in individual periods, how you set up your group periods, and then ultimately that execution that comes about in team 11 on 11 periods. The next is, how do you teach those skills? The most important tool for getting things done is the drill. For example, we work on drills to teach running backs about pass protection against blitzing linebackers. You have to identify the six different situations that can occur. Then you have to allocate the time to work on those six situations and also the 20 techniques that you want your running back to be able to apply. In teaching those skills, sometimes you want to have your guards and tight ends participate or the entire offensive unit. All of that requires preparation, discipline, and focus from both coaches and players. The way I coach, I know ahead of time how I am going to run the whole season's worth of practices. I've established the priorities for what we need to accomplish and allocated the time in which, we, in which to teach the necessary skills. I established a program long before we take the field so I can use most efficiently the time available for learning and so the players do not get bored or distracted. The players must know clearly at all times what it is that they have to get out of any given drill. After 35 years of coaching, I have found that you can't do anything in less than 10 minutes or more than 20 minutes. Another distinction is that in, in drills between those skills and techniques that can be taught individually and those that require groups, it is critical to allocate time for team play and to build in practice segments that focus on the execution of particular plays and particular game situations 
that you want to be ready for. Uh, I, I mentioned the drills already, and, and Coach says exactly that here on how you design those drills. And I think the other important part is the use of time, right? Knowing how you need to plan things out. And it's interesting. He talks about 10-minute periods. I know we've all really plan out and work around the five-minute period. Um, interesting there that he says 10, and then he also says not more than 20. So something to evaluate and think about as you're putting together your practice plans for the next year. And I think that's an important one too. He looks at this not just as one time of the year and what they're going to do there, but the whole year and what the progression is. And, and I think you'll find that, especially as you work with young players, you know, what are you going to add to them? What tools do you add as you go through the season? And when do you need those tools, right? Sometimes you can look at your schedule, for example, and know that, hey, we're playing, uh, as an example here, an even front team, okay? We know we're going to block a lot of even front early, all right? So maybe that's what you focus on first before you start to install odd front type of blocking and, and you know, get those things down because that's what you're going to see early, uh, then start to introduce some of those other things. Just thoughts there, but I think very important points from Coach Walsh. So that's the first half of the article, and I will share the second half with you. There's a lot to chew on here, a lot of things to think about. I'll put the link to this article in the show notes so you can read it for yourself. But we'll be back tomorrow to discuss the second part of this and some of the great thoughts that Coach Walsh has as well as how we start to see those in football today. Remember to go to laserclinics.com win to register for our sweepstakes. Follow me on Twitter at Coach K Grabowski and go over to Apple iTunes and click five star for me. Rate if you have a minute, write a review. Both of those things help the podcast.